Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> Would you like to Hi. come eat some sandwiches with me in my room full of taxidermy birds? Okay, I felt personally attacked by that scene as someone who recently asked you to take care of the taxidermied bird that I taxidermied this year. Mm -hmm. I was like, that is, I mean, there are a lot of communities that are poorly represented in this movie, but true. I have yet to see the essay on taxidermists respond. Well, maybe that's your responsibility. Taxidermists are regular people, just like you and me. Mm -hmm. And I think that the one thing that Norman Bates does correctly say is that it's actually a very affordable hobby. Um, <laughs> people think it would, it's going to be expensive. The only uh -huh. real expense is your time and your ability to wish to dissect things. Yeah. But I think sure. that as long as you're doing it legally and good. So sorry to start with my stumping for fellow taxidermists. No, 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 please. Uh, reduced I, to a symbol in a Hitchcock movie. I mean, it's yeah. good, but taxidermists didn't recover for years after mm. this movie. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, a protected class of people, uh, taxidermists. <laughs> the wild thing is there's like all these laws around taxidermy, which is good. But essentially, you cannot and should not taxidermy an animal that is in any way endangered or protected. There's all these mm. laws around it. But you can taxidermy any animal that is technically an invasive species oh. as long as they are already dead. So there's all these complicated <laughs> rules. But what it was explained to me mm -hmm. by my gorgeous, amazing taxidermy instructor, I was like, wow, it all does make sense. But she sources the birds that we taxidermied in her class like they were like ethically, I don't know. I mean, they were invasive species and on a farm and killing animals. And so I guess then oh you're my. allowed to kill the birds. But she bought the birds from this guy who like owned a farm in Wisconsin. And she's been buying European starling bird corpses 
from this man for a decade and he has never asked her what she's using the birds for. <laughs> Isn't that so scary? He's like, that I don't want to know. Is wild. Just if the check clears, it's all good. Also, it all comes full circle because someone who had a farm in Wisconsin, Ed Gein, a.k.a. The person who the book of this movie was loosely based on. Mr. So No, well, not Mr. Ed. That's a different guy. <laughs> That's a horse. <laughs> so, yeah, it all comes full circle. It's true. Anyway, hello and welcome to the Bechdel cast. I think that was a good intro. <laughs> Perfect, yes. flawless, no notes. Uh, my name is Caitlin Durante. My name is Jamie Loftus, and this is the podcast where we discuss either taxidermy or looking at your favorite movies from an intersectional feminist lens. That long conversation about taxidermy mostly passed the Bechtel test, I believe. Until we got to the farm owner, mm, I think it did. Yeah. And also, on the record, our friend Bryant is watching my bird. <laughs> I checked in on him a couple times. He's doing good. Glad to hear it. But that didn't pass the Bechtel test. But But why is that? It's a media metric that we use as a jumping off point for discussion. Uh, certainly not the be all end all of discussion at all. No. But Caitlin, what the hell is it? Well, it's a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel, sometimes called the Bechtel Wallace Test, first appearing in Alison Bechtel's comic Dykes to Watch Out For in 1985, intended originally as just like a one off goof, a bit, a joke mm -hmm. that has since been kind of co-opted into this pretty widespread media metric. There are many versions of it. The one that we use is this. Two characters of a marginalized gender have to have names, they have to speak to each other, and their conversation has to be about something other than a man. Mm -hmm. And ideally for us, it's a big, meaty conversation. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sure. Sorry to say meaty. No, as a member of the taxidermist community, I know a thing or two about meat. <laughs> sure. So that's our show. Today's episode, it's it's a big one. A long time coming, I think. Yeah. Because at this point, this show has been running long enough that we've covered at least one or so of the whatever considered the big director oeuvre which is mm -hmm. mostly white guys and includes this one yeah but we've never covered this guy and here we are the day has come we are covering 1960 alfred hitchcock psycho it's true and we have an amazing guest i'm so excited for our guest Yes, she is a film critic, podcaster, and columnist for Total Film Magazine. It's Layla Latif. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. I'm so excited. Long time listener, first time caller. Oh, <laughs> welcome. Never stop calling. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like this is not a soft landing. You, like, this, is, this, this is heavy. Yeah, it, I'm, I'm excited. This is a challenging uh, movie in many, many regards. So it seems to be a different movie every time I watch it. It really is. I mean, and this is, I think, part of the reason we haven't been actively avoiding Hitchcock, but part of the reason that I've avoided it is just logistically, there is so much written about this movie and this director that you're like, how do you even prepare for this episode? And we're about to find mm -hmm. out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Jamie, you and I were both talking off mic about how 
we did a lot to prepare, like the normal amount, but because there's just so much with this movie, we feel like we've barely scratched the surface. I kind of took approach where I was like, well, there's just too much, so I'm going to do almost nothing. Huh. Except I read like Anthony Perkins' entire Wikipedia page. Oh, he's I read a bunch of yeah. stuff about Ed Gein. I listened to part one of the Behind the Bastards episode on Alfred Hitchcock. I obviously watched the movie several times. I would say I... that's not almost nothing. <laughs> Why are you being down I... on yourself? <laughs> I don't know. Sounds like quite a bit. You're right. Yeah, that's like a working week. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a lot. Yeah. I But I still feel very unprepared. I think it's kind of hard not to. I mean, I think between the three of us, you know, we've... I think it's interesting with this movie, there's so many ways into talking about it. And it just seems sort of like what stands out to you personally that you're kind of drawn to. I was really drawn to how serial killers and like mental illness are portrayed in, mm -hmm. in this movie and how it influenced other movies. Maybe we should just get into our personal histories because when I was rewatching it, I haven't seen this movie in probably close to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I kind of forgot how well we get to know Marion before she dies. Right. Which there's a lot yeah. to talk about with Marion. For sure. Which I feel like you wouldn't know by the scenes of, from this movie that are the most famous. But we'll get to that. Yeah, because it's just like she's getting stabbed. Mm -hmm. But first, let's get through what our personal history is with, I guess, this movie and also just Alfred Hitchcock in general. Yeah, Layla, what's your experience with the oeuvre? Psycho just feels like something that I'd like never not seen in a weird way. Like, mm -hmm. I think because like by the time I came to it, I just like I'd seen so many parodies and references and I knew exactly what was going to happen with like the chair spinning around. And I knew that there was this whole thing where, you know, she kind of dies at this like midway point and stuff. So like I had so much knowledge coming into it and I watched every horror movie like way too young. I was probably like seven when I watched this for the first time. Wow. Like it just feels like omnipresent in my life in a weird way. But mm -hmm. like as a result, like coming back to it, I'm, I'm kind of like you, Jamie, like it probably been about 10 years since I'd seen it last. But it, it feels like the parodies could kind of like gotten away from it. And it was really nice to come back to because I reimagined Marion because it's kind of like what she'd been in the culture is like Drew Barrymore from Scream, basically, of like yeah. the big star who like shot gets killed off rather than like she's in it to like the midway point. I would say. Yeah, the first yeah. Like 45 minutes or so. And she has like in a whole arc. It's like, it's why I totally, I didn't remember. Yeah. It didn't feel like the rug pull that I'd like remembered. Like I've still left this feeling like she was the star of this movie. She was still the protagonist rather than just some kind of plot twist device. Yeah. Mm. Right. Jamie, how about you? My history with this movie, same thing. I mean, I found myself, as I was watching it this time, it surprised me in a lot of ways. And it also, I don't know, this feels like one of the few movies where it's impossible to have a clean reading of it because everyone knows what happens at the midpoint of the movie. I would love to be able to see this movie and not know that happens, but mm -hmm. it's impossible. By the time I saw it for the first time in probably high school, Everyone knows what happens. It, I, I think I remembered it as happening earlier in the movie. But yeah, I mean, it's like you, 
it's so cultural osmosisy that everyone knows the chair turning, everyone knows the shower scene. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's an interesting watch because you can't not know that kind of against your will. And I think my relationship with Hitchcock, I was in fifth grade. For, I had this amazing teacher who, for some reason, decided he was going to show a bunch of nine-year-olds the birds. Um, <laughs> and there were two kids that peed themselves <laughs> during the oh, movie. No. It's just, it was an iconic fifth grade experience. Every kid in that class remembers seeing the birds. Parents were upset. My mom was like, huh. And then I didn't sleep for like a week. And so that's, I think, my most vivid Hitchcock-related movie. And then learned more about him as a person, as an adult. It's like a wild ride Mm. with his Mm. work, which we can get into later. And also, I mean, I listened to the Hitchcock episodes of Behind the Bastards when they first came out. And Mm -hmm. I mean, holy shit. I mean, this... Yeah, <laughs> literally said, "quote Women are a nuisance." So uh, there's there's a lot to get into, but this movie, I think, I came away from it surprised and with way more to talk about than I originally thought I would. So excited mm-hmm. to talk about it, Caitlin. What's your history with Psycho, the Hitchcock expanded universe? I saw it for the first time in college, I think, when I was watching a bunch of Hitchcock for the first time. And like you, Jamie, I already knew the iconic scenes, the twist at the end, you know, just through cultural osmosis. And then I think I didn't watch it since, but I will think about the movie basically any time, because in the past few years, the conversation about trans representation in media is more present in the zeitgeist. And part of that conversation is the representation of like trans and or gender nonconforming people as murderers in Mm -hmm. media. And I'd be like, oh, psycho, like psycho is such an early example of that. So like, it just like comes to mind every time that particular topic gets brought up and then re-watching the movie, I was like, oh yes, <laughs> confirmed. So that will be, I imagine, a huge part of our discussion later on. But yeah, it's um, it's just so weird to me that such a huge like piece of cinema, like an iconic piece of cinema, like such an influential thing in American cinema that's so celebrated is also so damaging and harmful to so many communities. So that's, (laughs) those those are my initial thoughts on it. But yeah, uh, I haven't seen this movie, I think since I watched it that first time, probably like well over 15 years ago. But I generally like Hitchcock movies. It's weird. Like, I like Strangers on a Train. I like Rear Window. I like North by Northwest. I haven't seen Rope and a few of his other, like, pretty major ones. I'm with you. There are some, like, really tiny gems. I mean, about every decade I'll do, like, a big Hitchcock rewatch and, like... Mm -hmm. The minor ones are so good. Like Lifeboat is amazing. Rope oh. rocks. There's like less problematic than um, Psycho in many regards. But I think like with that same nasty spirit, really recommend Frenzy, which is basically his last good one. Okay. I mean, and just like 
and I don't know, maybe it's like my Britishness, but like, <laughs> I think he's like, I love his humor. Like, um, mm-hmm. there's a lady vanishes is so funny. I've never seen it. It's really, really funny. And I always feel like humor dates more than any other genre of film. And yeah. like, it's mm-hmm. still like laugh out loud, funny and just stupid in like mm-hmm. the best ways. Interesting. So, I think we yeah. were having a conversation like this recently where it's like, for all of this movie's difficult and often just outright prejudiced ways of viewing the world, it's a good movie and that's kind of why it has the cultural influence that it does and why we're talking about it and why it's like, I don't know, if you can make a good movie and project those values, it's kind of a scary amount of power to to have. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't done... Uh, Hitchcock B-sides viewing before. I did recently go back and watch The Birds to see if it was as scary as I remembered. And it was not. It's pretty and? funny, though. It's, it's a very funny <laughs> no, movie. it's terrible. It's so bad. It's not a good movie. <laughs> it's straight up bad. Yeah. Okay, try being um, nine. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. But, like, it all kind of, like, brings the question of, like, the kind of artistic male genius where, in a way, like, I'll do mental gymnastics to, like, make Psycho okay and, like, try and, like, justify it to myself. I can in no way justify that, like, Tippy Hedron was, like, tortured to make the birds. <laughs> like, it's so bad. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting that there was only a care about it in any cultural way and like five years ago mm-hmm. because as far as I know she had spoken about it before and no one cared and then all of a sudden when the Me Too movement started getting some momentum all of a sudden people cared and were like I can't believe I didn't know this and it's like well well you could have she said it <laughs> a long time ago yeah yeah well shall we take a quick break and then come back to recap the movie let's do it All right, we'll be right back. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. And we're back. Here is the recap of Psycho. We are in Phoenix, Arizona. Ever heard of it? Sure have. And we meet Marion Crane. That's Janet Lee, of course. She is in a hotel room smooching her boyfriend, Sam, played by John Gavin. They are talking about getting married, but they can't because... He is in debt and he's paying his ex his ex-wife's alimony and he can't support her and so they can't get married. Mm-hmm. Then we see Marion at work at a real estate office where a rich guy named Mr. Cassidy is there to buy a house with a wad of cash. This fucking guy. <laughs> He's, <laughs> this fucking guy. He's so horrible. And then he crossed into like campy territory for me when he said, I need a drinkeroonie. And I was like, well, <laughs> what are we going to do oh, with this guy? He's just the worst. And it's just like tax evasion. he's he's like my daughter is my baby and my property i don't pay my taxes and i want to drink at work right now and i am such a terrible father that i assume you can be an 18 year old girl and never had a sad day this Ah, is how observant i am and we learn all of this while he is sexually harassing our protagonist it really is kind of an all-timer and to be fair the movie is aware that he's horrible but it was just like i didn't remember that character and i watched that Mm -hmm. scene three times because i was just like i don't know if i'm catching everything he's moving so fast (laughs) he's among the things is the fact that he has a wad of cash of forty thousand dollars that he's just carrying around on him in 1960 money it's in 1960 money fucking (laughs) Wild. I googled it. You can just add a zero, which is very helpful math wise. So it's oh, like it's about four hundred four hundred thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. Okay, so houses like were that. expensive back then too. Well, that's like a probably a huge estate, big ass house. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so point is, he's got cash. One thing I loved about Marion right from the jump um, was that she is giving it about two percent at her job. I feel like that is rare to see in any movie in a way that the movie is sort of ambivalent about. Like she comes back really late to work because she was having sex <laughs> and then she leaves 20 minutes later. She's like, ow, my head. And then like, I gotta go. Like I just, that was how I did, acted at my jobs in my early 20s. And I kind of was like, mm, maybe I should bring it back. Yeah. No one seems bothered. <laughs> She's yeah. quietly quitting, no doubt about <laughs> <She> it. <is. laughs> She's giving capitalism about the level of respect that it deserves. Exactly. <laughs> she does not yeah. give a shit, but she's worked there for 10 years. Like You're just like, good for Marion, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. we should try less hard. 
Yeah. That's true. Redistribute wealth. Go for it, Marion. Yeah. That was her plan. Also, yeah, what she does, a victimless crime, I 100%. think. Mm-hmm. You're just like, yeah, steal $40,000 for someone who sexually harassed you. Mm, I, you know, he's already rich. He's the worst. Do it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> steal, eat the rich, steal from the rich, etc. So he comes in with this $40,000. Marion's boss, Mr. Lowry, tells her to take it directly to the bank. So Marion leaves with the cash, but she doesn't go to the bank. Instead, she packs a suitcase and heads out of town with the money. On her way out, her boss sees Marion in her car, and he's like, hmm, that's weird. And she's like, oh, no. And then the string instruments are playing loudly, and it's an anxious moment. Then for a while, a cop is tailing her. He follows her to California, where she trades in her car for another car in a transaction that takes like five minutes, because I get it's the 60s. And then she takes off again in a hurry. She's driving. It's dark. It's pouring rain. So she pulls over at the Bates Motel, which... Big mistake. Big mistake, babe. (laughs) I really appreciated in that whole sequence, because even when the scenes are like kind of weirdly long, it feels very intentional. And like you just, I didn't really remember the last time I saw this movie, how intentional this movie is about setting up how Marion has to navigate her way through the world, like as Mm -hmm. a woman and as like an attractive woman very, very intentionally. And it's like, it's, I don't know. I feel like a time where you could easily get away with showing a woman or any character really just kind of moving through the world, like, ah, ha, ha, hi, whatever. And just like half-assing it. There Mm -hmm. is like a menacing undertone to how every man in the story treats her. Right. Up to her arriving at Bates Motel and then by Norman as well. Mm -hmm. And that whole sequence where she's driving towards the motel and you hear kind of her fantasizing about how people will react to her disappearance and all this stuff. It's just, it's more than I remembered uh, getting in terms of the context for who she is and why she's running. And I thought it was cool. And it's something that a lot of contemporary horror movies fail to do in terms of like showing the unease in which a woman moves about the world people and particularly men around her will be menacing and creepy and uh in a lot of like female protagonists in more modern horror movies they're just like what i don't even notice anything everything seems fine no danger here nothing to worry about in a way that always bugs me because I'm like that is not how women move about the world we're like very cognizant of the dangers around and I feel like this movie successfully does that in a way that uh, a lot of other horror movies do not yeah I think it's something that was really articulated pretty beautifully in like the recent Barbie movie which <laughs> very different movie but like mm-hmm. like the, <laughs> with with women like attention often just has this like undertone of violence and like obviously Marion is a like ludicrously beautiful and glamorous woman and there's the, the what I found interesting about like because she's kind of always 
moving with this undertone of violence that there is always this attention which has this like sinister like you said menacing edge to it mm-hmm. like that hyper vigilance can only get her so far so actually she drops her guard whilst we're with Norman in a way that kind of makes sense if you've seen like her journey so far because of course he is being unsettling and disturbing in a way that we can identify but that is simply every interaction she has with a man to a certain degree up right. until that point mm-hmm. and we see her like advocate for I don't know I like that it's like also clear that she understands what's happening she's kind of choosing her battles as this sort of continues to happen she mm-hmm. chooses them very intentionally, like with the cop, where the cop is harassing her. He wants to know what she's doing. Why is she sleeping on the side of the road? And she's just like, what have I done? Why do I need to show you my license and registration? What is necessary? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you doing this? And I really appreciate how it's such a hard balance to strike. And I feel like it's really, I don't know. I was thinking about the Barbie movie as well. I just saw it for the second time the other night. Um, but mm-hmm. Yeah, like striking the fact that she is comp, like she's hyper competent. She's very aware of what's happening, but being aware of what's happening is not necessarily enough to protect you. And it felt like this movie did a better job than I remembered at like making that clear and striking that balance. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay, so she is now at the Bates Motel, which is run by Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins who lives in the house just up the hill overlooking the motel. He checks her into room one. Uh, She gives him a fake name, like in the registry. And she's also the only guest staying there because the whole thing with this motel is that it used to be along a main highway, but they made a new main highway. So there's basically no traffic going past this place and no one stays there anymore. So it's very secluded. Then he invites her to his house for dinner, but as she's getting settled and hiding the cash by rolling it up in a newspaper and sitting it on the bedside table, amazing hiding spot. To be fair, it's her first time stealing $40,000. <laughs> true, true, true. It also seems like getting away with crime was pretty easy back then. Like a cop could watch you as you switch cars. Yeah, and he's yeah. just like, well, I don't know. I know. <laughs> and he's like, wow, this lady knows the law. She knows. <laughs> I guess that what she's doing isn't technically against the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all the things about Hitchcock that have like aged really badly, how much in basically every movie he hates the police. True. <laughs> like, it's just always delightful to me. Yeah, they're like portrayed as bumbling, incompetent, getting in the way, never helping, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like the whole third act of this movie relies on, like, it's barely discussed. It's just, like, assumed by Sam and by, oh, my gosh, what's her name? Uh, her sister. Lila. Lila. That the cops are not competent enough or don't care enough to mm-hmm. solve this crime, and they have to take it into their own hands, which is, like, it's great. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay, so as she's getting settled into her room, she overhears Norman Bates arguing with his mother about inviting a strange woman over for dinner. And the mother is like shaming him and shaming Marion. 
And then he shows back up with some food and she's like, Ooh, your mom sounds awesome. And then (laughs) they dine together, but in the parlor area behind his office, which is that room full of taxidermy birds. He tells her she eats like a bird. (laughs) And he's like, a boy's best friend is his mother. And he talks about how his mother is mentally unwell and how he feels trapped there, having to take care of her. She's very controlling, all of this stuff. And Marion's like, well, why don't you put her in a facility? And he's like, no, those places are horrible. And he gets pretty scary for a moment. And she's like, yikes, bro. But things kind of return to normal-ish. And she goes back to her room where he then peeps on her via a hole in the wall while she's undressing. Then she gets in the shower. We get the iconic shower scene where Norman Bates's mother comes in and stabs Marion in the shower multiple times. The violins are screeching. It's iconic. It's like that music cue and the Jaws music cue. Mm. Like that's... Those are the two that you Those just, <laughs> maybe there's others, maybe Star Wars, whatever. Doesn't matter. <laughs> as far as like horror movies go. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say that's a Jurassic Park one, but yeah, nah, nothing's quite as evocative as eek, eek, eek. <laughs> oh, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yeah. That I'm excited to come back to that scene between the two of them. Right before mm-hmm. the death mm-hmm. scene too. Cause that scene is just like full of, things to talk about for sure yeah Yeah. so marion has been stabbed to death and moments later norman discovers what his mother has done he rushes to help marion but it's too late she's dead so he cleans up the crime scene packs up her body and her belongings including the money that's tucked in the newspaper that he doesn't realize is there uh, into her car and then pushes her car into this like swamp tar pit kind of place cut to marion's sister lila played by vera miles approaching marion's boyfriend sam to try to find out where marion is because it's been several days and no one has heard from her then this guy arbogast Great name. It's <laughs> just truly sounds like a guy in a horror movie to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's played by Martin Balsam. Arbogast is a private investigator who I think was hired by Mr. Cassidy, the guy whose $40,000 is missing. And Arbogast starts going around to different motels in the area to try to find Marion, including the Bates Motel. And he's able to match Marion's handwriting in the registry book with a sample that he has. So he starts asking Norman a bunch of questions about did Marion stay there and blah, blah, blah. And Mr. Norm is being pretty suspicious. And then Arbogast sees Norman's mother sitting in the window of the house. And Arbogast wants to question her. But Norman is like, no thanks. Now go away, please. Mm. 
obviously Arbogast is very suspicious. And he comes back a little later and goes to the house to question Mrs. Bates because he thinks that she has information about Marion's whereabouts. But Mrs. Bates promptly stabs Arbogast to death in another pretty iconic scene where he's falling backwards down the stairs. Meanwhile, Lila and Sam are like, where's our friend, Mr. Arbogast? He was supposed to call us back several hours ago. So Sam goes off to find the Bates Motel to see what's going on. Yeah, quick stop off with some useless police. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Yeah, I guess that the best you could say of the police in this movie is that at one point they were kind of doing their best. Uh, (laughs) And that's not saying much. Nope. So Sam finds the motel. He can't find Arbogast, so he comes back to Lila. Then they go to this, like, deputy sheriff guy who is like, well, it sounds like your private investigator doesn't even have his facts straight because Norman Bates's mother died 10 years ago. And Sam is like, well, I saw an old woman sitting in the window And so there's like a lot of confusion about who she is and what's going on. God, there's so many moments in this movie that it's like it really kept hitting for me how iconic the big beats of this movie are. Because there are multiple times when I was rewatching it last night when I was just like, how could he not know that? Like, it's psycho. Like, you should know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, but then it, it, if it were possible to have a clean reading of this movie, would I have picked up on it? Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. We'll never know. It's tricky. It does seem a bit weird, though, that apparently, like, Hitchcock is like, so, so dedicated to preserving these twists and, like, was buying up every copy of, like, the book yeah. that it was based on mm-hmm. to, like, make sure people wouldn't know. And, like, that before it happens, there's that, like, small foreshadowing of just, like... Oh, no, she's dead. It's like, why would you put that? <laughs> right. That kind of gives a lot away. <laughs> and, like, those characters have no incentive to lie about it. Like, But it is kind of just, like, passed over as the movie goes forward. And they're like, no, no, there's an old lady up there. We know it. Maybe they try to cover their tracks because the sheriff guy is like, well, if Mrs. Bates is still alive, then who's that woman buried in the cemetery? And it's like, well, that doesn't do quite enough, sir. Yeah, you've still planted the idea. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, mean, it, I guess it's very different because like, it's not like we saw Psycho Fresh, we saw it like knowing that that was going to happen. But that does seem in retrospect like a little taking the wind out of the sails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so Lila and Sam, realizing that the police are useless, go to the motel to investigate on their own. They check in, pretending to be a married couple, and sneak into room one. So their suspicion is that Norman Bates stole the $40,000 from Marion, but they don't find any conclusive evidence in room one. So Lila wants to talk to the mother while Sam distracts Norman. And Lila goes into the house. She snoops around the mother's bedroom. She snoops around Norman's bedroom, which is very, like, childlike and creepy. Meanwhile, Norman Bates does not like the things that Sam is insinuating. 
So he knocks Sam out and rushes up to the house. Lila, meanwhile, heads down to the fruit cellar where she sees Mrs. Bates from behind sitting in a chair. But then Mrs. Bates spins around and twist. She's a skeleton. Mm-hmm. Who would have? You know seen how you it? spin an old lady around when you walk into. Yeah, you're just, <laughs> look at me. Ugh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do appreciate in this whole sequence, like Sam. I guess I don't know, like how intentional the movie is making this, but it felt clear to me where it's like Sam is. I guess well intentioned, but he is just like not good at doing any <laughs> any of the things he's supposed to be doing. Lila takes control from him multiple times, and he's always like, ah, "I don't know, Lila." Blah, blah, blah. But then always ends up going with her plan, and then he executes his portion of the plan poorly. Without yes. like, I was like, "Why would you say I'm going to go distract Norman Bates and then immediately get into an argument with him? What are you doing?" Yeah, he's not being subtle at all. He should be like, hey, let's talk about taxidermy or something. Like, yeah. Right. Distract him. You know, <laughs> instead, he's just like, you stole money, didn't you? And Yeah. I mean, if we know anything about Norman at this point, it's that he can be led on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like he hasn't talked to anybody in years. Like, he's down to chat. Just, like, don't talk to him about his mom or <laughs> crimes. <laughs> Two topics (laughs) to avoid. And what does Sam do? Both. He talks about both of those. Yep. Okay, so Mrs. Bates is a skeleton. And just then, Norman Bates, dressed as his mother in a wig and a dress, and he's holding a knife, pops in about to stab Lila. But then Sam comes in behind Norman and stops him and saves Lila. Then we cut to a courthouse where a psychiatrist who has just spoken to Norman Bates off screen explains a whole bunch of stuff that we'll unpack, but basically that Norman Bates has a dual personality where sometimes he's Norman, sometimes he's his mother, and how Norman had murdered his mother and her lover 10 years prior and then stole her body and preserved it and becomes his mother. And then the movie ends with a shot of Norman Bates, but with voiceover from his mother saying, my son is a bad boy. He's the one who murdered those people. I wouldn't even harm a fly. And then he has that shot that looks just like Janet Lee when she's in the car. They're both mm-hmm. like, hey, hey, hey. like mm. narrow eyes, <laughs> almost like, like stealing $40,000 from a rich guy is the same as being a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the same. So that's the movie. Let's take another quick break and we'll come right back. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. And we're back. We're back. Okay. <laughs> Layla, we always defer to our guests. What would you like to discuss first what jumped out at you I mean I've seen it so many times but I think this time I kind of ended up going down like a little bit of a kind of I don't know like a a different perspective on it and I was reminded in like the early days of YouTube you know when people were doing like those things where they'd re-edit movie trailers to make them look like they were a different genre so like Mary Poppins was like a horror movie and somebody did like psycho as being like a romantic comedy Mm -hmm. and like weirdly i found myself watching this as being like this is like kind of a hallmark christmas movie Ooh, and like hear me out it's they specify it starts on december 11th (laughs) and then she's got like two days in phoenix arizona and then she has an overnight drive and then they specify that it's a week till people start looking for her Bound that say two, three days of the investigation in the end. I swear to God, I think Norman Bates, that final scene happens on Christmas. Whoa. Sure. And then the whole thing, just like, I kind of work backwards from that, <laughs> where I was like, is this like the most searing satire on like bullshit romantic comedy Christmas movies? Because we have our like gal from the city, this kind of career gal who kind of is like ambitious in all of these ways and kind of cutthroat. And then she's kind of got the boyfriend who won't really commit, but she's really very interested in him. And then this like folksy guy who loves his mom and has hobbies (laughs) takes her in. And it kind of felt at like the 47 minute mark. I was like, there is a version of this where he is about to, she's going to spend 40k investing in this motel and he's about to teach her the meaning of Christmas. And yeah, it's, it's not what I expected to think coming onto this podcast. (laughs) Part of me. And I think the Anthony Perkins being like such an insane dreamboat was just like, am I actually watching what promising young woman wishes it was where we are having like this, like searing critique of like the nice guy in, 
like the cultural imagination. That's so yeah, fascinating. <laughs> I didn't know very much about Anthony Perkins as a person. I, uh, I mean, he has a fascinating and in many ways, I think tragic life in the way that, I mean, mm -hmm. he was like a dreamboat. He was like a, an icon long before this movie came out, but was also a very talented actor. Yeah. He was closeted, I think for his entire life and at different points in his life underwent mm. abusive kind of conversion therapy yeah. to, to try to not be gay anymore which is very of the time that's well documented and mm -hmm. ultimately died of AIDS but also just had this incredible life and this incredible career and was an activist his entire career and it was like I really loved learning about him and I was curious why he was thought of for this part because he's in his like late 20s mm -hmm. when he did this and he was advocated for by Hitchcock, even though, I don't know, I was curious about, because it's an adaptation from the book you were referencing, Layla, and Hitchcock got wind of it and basically bought it out of a stock so no one could find out about all the dun-dun kinds of moments. <laughs> but originally, I was pleasantly surprised at the changes that Hitchcock and the screenwriter, whose name is... Joseph Stefano chose to make from the book. I have not read the book, probably never will. Yeah. But originally, I think it was written in sort of far more broad stereotype strokes where the character of Norman is written to be, I think, an alcoholic who, quote unquote, swaps personalities when he drinks too much. He's written to be middle aged. Mm -hmm. He's written to be not stereotypically handsome. And it was sort of suggested, mm -hmm. like, what if we cast a young kind of iconically hot guy <laughs> to do this? And how will that yeah. affect it? And I think it was a really interesting switch that definitely affected my read of the movie and sort of challenges what you expect from people who look a certain way when you see them on screen. Mm -hmm. Other changes I saw was in the book, Marion and Sam do not have a hotel tryst in the book that was added for the movie. Right. But something that they took out that I couldn't really remember if it happened or not, um, and was pleasantly surprised was that because Lila and Sam were spending so much time together, I'm like, hmm, two hot people, 1960. They're probably, we're probably <laughs> going to force them together <laughs> arbitrarily, but they don't. And I guess in the book that did happen where like Lila and Sam fell right. in love over the recent death of someone they both loved. Uh, <laughs> so uh -huh. I mostly thought that the changes that they made for the movie were pretty cool and like served the story. I agree. And then also, as we mentioned, the book, which was written by Robert Block, was loosely based on real life murderer slash grave robber Ed Gein, which I guess might kind of inform like the really bizarre psychoanalysis that the psychiatrist gives of Norman Bates at the end of mm -hmm. the movie, which again, we'll talk about, but give him a break. Yeah. It's Christmas. <laughs> it's Chris. He's like, Merry Christmas. By the way, 
Uh, <laughs> it's true. He's, he has to close one of the most famous movies of all time on Christmas, no less. Yeah. He's having mm-hmm. a hard time. Uh, that scene, I also kind of forgot of like, I think that happens in a lot of Hitchcock movies and maybe just older movies in general where at the end, it, everything has to be wrapped up and you're like, wait, there's only two minutes left. And then a guy gives a speech and then you're like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I guess that. I guess that's how it ends. It was just so abrupt. Yeah. But yeah, so you, did you, Caitlin, did you go sort of down the rabbit hole on Ed Gein? I, I didn't learn a lot about him personally. I just knew that the author of the book like lived locally. And so it was something that was like local lore that existed yeah. in his mind. I read uh, a large chunk of Ed Gein's Wikipedia page on scholarly journal, of course, Wikipedia. Okay. Basically a doctorate. <laughs> So I, I know everything now. So I, I don't have a whole lot of insight here. Although I was curious because like the Wikipedia, again, I should, you know, do more research than just scholarly journal Wikipedia. But the Wikipedia page for the movie Psycho says like, oh, here are the similarities between Norman Bates and Ed Gein. They both like live in these secluded areas. They both had domineering mothers where they like had a shrine to them in their house. They both wore women's clothing. And then I looked into Ed Gein more and I was like, wait a minute. That may or may not be true. I couldn't, what I did find is that Ed Gein made a suit or started to, and this is going to be graphic and gory, but he started to make like a woman suit, literally a like skin suit from his victims and or like bodies that he had grave robbed. The list of things Mm. found at his house, viewer beware, you're in for a scare. It is (laughs) Arl Stein, scary, scary, bad, horrible. And yeah. Because I also read that very scary Wikipedia page. It felt like because it seems basically impossible and maybe for the best that that was not shown on screen and like fully adapted Mm -hmm. into Norman Bates's character. The sub in was a very transphobic and just generally queer phobic narrative around gender nonconforming clothing. They're like, well, it's basically the same thing. And you're like, well, wait, hold on. No, it's yeah. not. No, it's <laughs> yeah. not. So yeah, I guess that leads into, so I want to kind of unpack what the psychiatrist says about Norman Bates and then what the implications of that are. <laughs> so the psychiatrist is describing Norman Bates as having some sort of like quote-unquote split personality disorder and I know that's like not the real name of anything but also the disorder that's being depicted in the movie is like not a real thing it's some you know like Hollywood version of a disorder but the point is the psychiatrist is saying that sometimes he's Norman Bates sometimes he's inhabiting the personality and likeness of his mother He describes Norman as having been, quote unquote, disturbed ever since his father died, that his mother was clingy, demanding, and it seems like she and Norman had a very codependent relationship until Mrs. Bates met a man. She took a lover 
And Norman became very jealous, so he murdered his mother and her lover. But he knew that murdering his mother was bad, that he was a bad boy. And so he had to erase this crime in his mind by becoming his mother. So he stole her corpse and preserved it. And he was also... Again, he was jealous of his mother and assumed that she was just as jealous of him as he was of her. And so if he ever felt an attraction to a woman, you know, the mother's side of him would take control. Again, this is the psychiatrist describing this. The mother side of Norman would take control. And so like when he met Marion and he was attracted to her, that set off the mother and then he, as his mother, like inhabiting the personality and mindset of his mother, that's who killed Marion. And then as far as why he was wearing a dress and a wig, another person in the courtroom speculates that Norman was a, and then he uses like a very dated term to refer to people who wear clothes that quote unquote don't match the gender that they're assigned at birth. But the psychiatrist is like, no, no, that's not true. Norman Bates wore those clothes to become his mother and to maintain the illusion that his mother is alive. So we have (laughs) this just like really like quack science, quack medicine explanation of what is going on uh, in the psychology of Norman Bates. And the movie does not come right out and say, like, this person is trans and or gender nonconforming, and therefore they are a murderer. But this is one of many movies that equates gender nonconformity, kind of to use that as an umbrella term here, with mental illness, which like at the time, you know, in the 60s and before and beyond, this was a very popularly held belief. Which I think you can trace in Anthony Perkins's own life, kind of ironically. It's like this was yeah. very much the uh, normalized opinion to have at the time to the point where the lead actor in the movie, whose character is being subscribed to all this bullshit, like was experiencing obviously not the exact same thing, but was also being treated as if being queer was a fundamental failure in a medical condition. I mean, and that was Mm -hmm. for a decade after this movie came out. And like what I think it's like these different, I don't know. There's so many different issues and discussions inside of that, like minute long monologue where it's conflating gender nonconformity and transness and queerness with mental illness. And this is Mm -hmm. like a very typical problem for horror movies to have still is like completely misunderstanding the mental illness that they think that they're describing, that they are needlessly conflating with gender nonconformity. So it's just like all of this stuff all at once. I know we've talked about how in movies and often in horror movies there will be a specific mental illness that is prescribed as like this is why this character is violent 
you know, needs to be mm-hmm. put away, needs to be killed, whatever the movie sort of prescribes to. And it is like almost always the better choice to just not attach a specific diagnosis to something like that. Like no one's asking mm-hmm. that horror movie villains don't exist, but it is still, I mean, I the one that always comes up for me because I think it just like upset me personally was in the opening sequence of Midsommar where mm-hmm. it's implied that Florence Pugh's sister murders the entire family because she is bipolar, which is just like yeah. such a w- huge false swing than that was a couple of years ago. And so it's like, you know, very right. normalized within this genre to do that. But I just wanted to share a quick, cause I'm not a mental health professional. Like I was like, <laughs> it's safe to say, like, I'm assuming that they're getting this diagnosis wrong, but I, I wonder <laughs> if anyone's written about it. So I have just a quick passage from the American journal of psychiatry from 2020 from Riley Mancine BS. Mm-hmm writing about horror movies and mental conditions throughout the ages. They write, quote, one of horror's most iconic portrayals of a psychiatric condition was in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. The protagonist, Norman Bates, who commits several murders, demonstrates many features of dissociative identity disorder. Because DID Mm -hmm. was not well explored in media at the time, many interpreted the delusions and disorganized thought of Norman Bates as schizophrenia. As a result, audiences generalized the two disorders as one. Psycho portrayed a psychiatric condition coupled with a new heightened level of violence on the silver screen, which perpetuated negative stereotypes of violence by psychiatric patients, unquote. And so it's not Mm -hmm. Psycho that invented this, but it's definitely one of the most popular examples. Right. And so to go back to conflating gender nonconformity with mental illness, which Mm -hmm. this movie very much does among many others. And again, that was and still is until pretty recently was a belief held by medical science and psychiatry. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 2013 when the DSM-5 was published that, quote, gender identity disorder was eliminated and replaced with gender dysphoria, pulling that from psychiatry.org. Yeah, we're all waiting for the DSM-6 to drop because... Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so medical science was historically very much in the mindset of conflating gender nonconformity with mental illness, but not just mental illness, specifically with violence, because there are many, many mental illnesses, and I have several of them that are nonviolent, <laughs> you know, but like this and many, many movies say like, if you have any characteristics of gender nonconformity, you are mentally ill and therefore violent. You're an abuser, you're a murderer, you're a psychopath, basically. And this was basically the only way that trans people and any gender nonconforming people were represented in media for the longest time, which has obviously had like an incredibly damaging effect on that community to the point where there's still constant legislation trying to bar trans people from using the appropriate bathrooms because they think that trans people are going to prey on people in bathrooms, things like that. And just legislating trans people out of existence altogether, which 
we've talked about this on the show before, but the doc that came out a couple of years ago, Disclosure, it like yes, illustrates this point very clearly. Yeah, I even pulled a quote from it because I, as part of my prep, I also watched uh, a chunk of that movie and Laverne Cox points out that, quote, Alfred Hitchcock seems to be obsessed with people who traverse gender stereotypes as murderers. And then there are clips of Psycho. There's a clip of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour from 1965. There's also a clip from a movie called Murder! Exclamation point. Mm from 1930. Um, So Hitchcock had a habit of doing this quite a lot. I mean, one of the things that I find also like kind of on a next level kind of obsessing about like the narrative that this starts is that also kind of gender nonconformity comes from like a nugget of abuse that like there has to be kind of like an inciting incident. There has mm-hmm. to be something that went horribly wrong in your childhood that kind of like sent you off on this spiral. For sure. But also like in a broader context, I like I hate these sort of stories about abuse victims necessarily themselves evolving into what it is that damaged them in the first place. And I, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but like I believe the numbers do not actually manifest in that way like if you are someone who has been through a horrifically abusive childhood the idea that you are necessarily doomed to reenact that I think is Mm -hmm. very very difficult for survivors of abuse to like feel that you are necessarily trapped in that cycle but also just like not helpful for sure and you know in in, in any degree and you know let's face it sadly like the people that most like to suffer from that sort of abuse are people from marginalized genders so it just all feels like it's buying into something very insidious to me. Especially because this movie blames Norman's, like the thing that makes him become quote unquote disturbed is the death of his father. Almost as if to say like, without the presence of another male figure in his life, like setting him on the right path. Yeah he becomes this murderer and it also blames his mother for like all of his bad behavior and that's not to say that like there aren't abusive dynamics between parents and children and that an abusive parent can't like you know affect a person's behavior and kind of the way their life pans out but like this movie is very much like this mother she it's all her fault and and mothers are to be blamed well i guess i was was a little confused about that by the because i feel like i mean and i don't know how intentionally this was done but by the end of the movie just because obviously from norman we get an inaccurate depiction of his relationship with his mother because he's acting as if she is still alive and then at the end, we get kind of a glazed over version of their relationship where it was not clear to me by the end of the movie, the mother and son were deeply codependent. For sure. But outside of that, it was unclear to me what degree of abuse had occurred. And, or it seems like in some ways that you could read it as like Norman was presented as this bad seed or that a close mm-hmm. relationship with his mother manifested a mental illness which is just like i was just confused by the end i was like what sequence of events is it is it trying to push well because fundamentally we are presented that norman is like 
completely like sexually shut down like he I mean I think kind of give the impression that he's never like had any sort of intimacy with mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. whilst his mother by all accounts has had two committed relationships she was married and then she mm-hmm. had like this fiance as well so it does kind of beg the question of like how much of this is sort of his psychosexual obsession with her rather than necessarily how it really was right right because it isn't right. i mean in the movie it is implied that like norman is attracted to women and is attracted to janet lee's character to marion yeah. and mm-hmm. that like that is something to be resisted and pushed away and that's i don't know maybe that is like a way in of talking about marion a little bit because i think just marion was a character who i think was better covered and and more thoughtfully covered than I Mm -hmm. remembered because I think a big turn in Norman's narrative is that he is doing what a lot of men are doing to Marion in this movie. He is trying to, you know, lure her and get her alone and spend time with her and have her attention, but he's doing it in a gentler way than we've seen men in this movie do it so far it doesn't make her less on guard Mm -hmm. but it's a different approach and at this point in the movie we're like we're not really sure who norman is or what he's like Mm -hmm. and that conversation between them takes a turn where he gets very prickly and defensive and frustrated when his mother comes up and the decisions around Mm -hmm. his family come up and then when she leaves he immediately (laughs) begins spying on her and watching her take off her clothes, mm-hmm. which is not the first time that even happens in the movie, because that's like how the movie starts is by us looking in a window at like Marion topless with Sam. So it's I, I don't know. I yeah. thought they were like interesting choices of how she's framed where you're always I mean, there are moments where you're the camera's very intentionally like leering at her. And with Norman, it's a character driven leering. But that's not even the first time that you're staring at Marion through a window with her clothes off. Like, it's just, I don't know. The way that she's mm-hmm. framed seems intentional in that way. Well, it made me wonder, because this is like one of the first, if not the first slasher movies. And such a big trope about slasher movies, as we've discussed, is the punishment of sexuality, specifically women's sexuality, with violence. So if you see teenagers and teen girls having sex, they are bound to get murdered violently in a way that's often framed extremely sexually, like the murder itself. And this is the case for this movie because she gets murdered while she's naked in the shower in a way that you could argue is sexualized where it made me wonder is Marion being punished for kind of having the movie frames what she's doing as having this like secret torrid affair. It's not quite that, but it, took me Mm. on my second watch to realize the dynamic of the relationship Mm. because they're talking about like oh or should we get married or who has been married before or not and I was confused by a lot of it and I thought maybe at least one of them between Marion and Sam 
was already married and they were cheating and having this, you know, secret affair where they have to meet up in a hotel room and all this stuff. And then it turns out that, no, it's just that he can't marry her because he is in debt and can't support her or something. But I feel like the movie is still framing it as like, this is a secret torrid affair out of wed and they're having sex out of wedlock and therefore marion has to be punished and you know punished violently and in a very sexually charged way i don't have like necessarily even (laughs) conclusive thoughts or totally fully formed thoughts on it but it was just like a lot of different things i was picking up on I think that's how I kind of previously felt and like this viewing changed that a little bit for me. I kind of saw the dynamic as being a bit like sex in the city, Mr. Big kind of like Sam is kind of making excuses and she is like wanting to commit and settle Mm. down. And then when she's in the car, she kind of fantasizes about what he'll say when he sees her and that she's going to be so like happy to, to see him and all of, uh, you know, and all of those things And I didn't feel that, like, the movie was necessarily judging her for those desires. And then, like, the shower scene is just so kind of overplayed in my head. But what struck me this time watching it is that she kind of lies out of the bathtub, you know, out of the shower. And, you know, he has this really long shot that's just on her eye. And the water from the shower is, like, dripping. And it kind of does appear to be almost like tears. And first mm-hmm. moment you think she's dead. And then you kind of see that she's, it's like the last flickers of life uh, kind yeah. of coming out of her. And the thing she's looking at is the money. Yeah. <laughs> There's part of me that it's just like, that was the sin mm-hmm. here. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know where to fall on. I, I guess I was surprised at the amount of grace the movie shows to Marion. I mean, and maybe that's me putting too much of a modern view on it, but it felt to me like the movie was, you know, not judgmental of Marion's actions. I don't know. I mean, I know that there's gendered stuff in this too, where, you know, in movies where male protagonist, you know, steals or robs someone, it's the pressure to justify it is not as great. But I felt like the movie Mm -hmm. did a good job of making it clear what Marion was trying to do and how frustrating her life was and that she wanted out Mm -hmm. and she didn't want, I mean, I think that there's a way to see it both ways, but it felt like it was a frustration of feeling like she had to hide a relationship and a frustration of feeling like having this relationship would result in her and her partner being judged on top of being treated like shit Mm -hmm. at work on top of being harassed by every man she comes into contact with. Not that stealing this money would change that, but it was, it's a very (laughs) active decision by her. I mean, I think a lesser movie would have someone suggest it to her like, but it's like she gets access to this money. This is her chance. And she decides to do it. I like that part. I don't really feel was done judgmentally I think the way that she dies and when she dies was how I I don't know I mean I didn't come down hard in one way but I think it is really interesting that it's like the moment that she decides to come clean is when she's killed and I don't know how that sort of affects the way that the movie 
seems to be viewing her. I think the way the movie frames her versus the way she's written are often kind of in conflict, which we've talked about in mm-hmm. a bajillion movies. I don't really understand why we're leering at her at the beginning of the movie. I guess I do understand it more when it's done from the character perspective of Norman, but there is other times it happens that I don't understand. But there was a... Um, quote from that Hitchcock and Truffaut book, which is just extended interviews with Hitchcock, discussing how the shower scene was filmed and what was supposed to be motivating it. And this is a quote from Janet Lee within that book. Marion had decided to go back to Phoenix, come clean and take the consequence. So when she stepped into the bathtub, it was as if she were stepping into the baptismal waters. The spray beating down on her was purifying the corruption from her mind, purging the evil from her soul. She was like a virgin again, tranquil, at peace, unquote. And so choosing to kill her at that moment, I don't know what <laughs> they're trying to do there. Because it doesn't feel like a pun. I mean, I feel like... You can argue that she's killed as a punishment for considering the sin of stealing or the sin of a relationship that was not acceptable at the time. But we've just seen her decide that she's not going to do that and she's going to return to her virtuous life. And that's when she's killed. And I don't I mean, I don't know. It's such a fascinating scene, that one with, you know, when they're having the sandwiches in the living room, given that, like, I think what Hitchcock manages to, like, do so skillfully is, like, you can, I mean, the music and the birds and, like, the lighting and everything, you know that this Mm -hmm. woman is in, like, grave danger and it's (laughs) under threat, but because Janet Lee's performance is just so good that you can kind of see why she's in, like, the mode of like, this is just like a harmless meet you. And this is kind of like some eccentric guy and he's kind of dreamy. And it's like her why her guard is down still comes across in that scene. But I mm-hmm. had completely forgotten that there's something about that conversation that she has with Norman that makes her change her mind and like decide that she's going to like go back and make it all okay again and like give back the money and like change it. And I, and I, I rewatched it like two or three times and I couldn't quite pick up on it. What Hitchcock thinks Norman is doing to Marion because she seems of like such a kind of stronger constitution than he is. And like mm-hmm. as much as, you know, Anthony Perkins is dreamy. Um, mm-hmm. Like that persuasion never felt quite right to me. Beyond that, maybe just she has like a moment to pause and reflect. But Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't identify anything specific that he says, unless maybe it's just like him talking about like being trapped and, you know, under the control of his mother, basically. And like she worries that by running away and like, because she'll eventually have to deal with the consequences of like, stealing this money if she will feel trapped just by like that the stress and the burden guilt of it. or not even the guilt but just yeah. the stress of getting potentially caught right maybe she decides it won't be worth it but whatever it is i agree that it's not clear yeah yeah, I mean, but that's why this is a, a you know, Christmas rom-com movie. Like, kind of deep, incredibly compelling, intelligent woman gets, like, persuaded by this, like, lame right. guy. Right. <laughs> the purpose of that scene, because I agree, like, I didn't feel like that that conversation resulting in her deciding to undo what she just started doing. Like, their predicaments are not 
similar. It was confusing why no. it was switched. <laughs> I read and it like this makes sense to me, but it, maybe the execution just like doesn't work for a modern audience or maybe just doesn't work at all was that that scene was put there. That scene doesn't appear in the book and it was put there so that you, it's like almost this moment of like transference so that you know enough about Norman that when when Janet Lee's character dies in a couple of minutes, your sort of sympathies have been transferred from Marianne to Norman, which that makes sense that, mm-hmm. that you have to do that. But maybe, but I think that like, I honestly don't even know that that, had to happen like why did she need to change her mind in order to leave that room and take a shower like her plan could have been the same I guess I don't know I mean I I don't like object to it but I don't really understand why that switch happened but do you think that's just kind of like male gaze in that like Hitchcock felt that we needed to have like additional reasons to find her death to be a bad thing yeah because I only kind of really needed that interaction with the guy who's doing the tax evasion and the 18-year-old daughter to be just like, I am fully on. Right. And her and her victimless crimes. Like, I don't give. Yeah, maybe that is like, oh, we need to show that she has made the upright, morally pure choice. And so then when she dies, it's sadder because she was going to do the right thing. She just didn't get the chance. She was tempted. Mm -hmm. Oh, that sucks. I mean, I would rather die stealing $40,000 than die about to (laughs) unsteal $40,000. Exactly. I also wish that Lila had been poised more front and center as like the new protagonist after Marion dies than she is because as we were discussing earlier, like she's better at like going about this whole thing as far as like investigating her sister's disappearance she has better ideas she's got better execution like i just i wish that she had been allowed to be a bit more important to the story because instead it becomes about like it's her and it's sam and it's arbogast and Mm -hmm. then norman bates is the person that we're like Actually, I don't even know what the movie, who the movie is like trying to get you to identify with as like the character you're rooting for post Marion's death. Because a protagonist dying 45 minutes into the movie is a really weird narrative choice. And like, I don't know what to... I I think it rocks. Mm. It's interesting, but like audiences aren't trained how to like redirect their empathy to like who now and like it's now spread over a bunch of different characters and i guess i I just wished like that lila would have been poised as like the new main person that we were supposed to direct our empathy toward yeah well i mean i i do love that like i said i love horror movies but like you know sometimes in the beginning of them you can just kind of quickly identify who's like Mm -hmm. cannon fodder (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, that this is kind of like the opposite of that. But and now I don't want to kind of bring new bad news, but like, I mean, Hitchcock treats Vera Miles, who played Lila Crane, like that because he was really angry at her for getting pregnant. Mm. So oh, he kind of no. gives her not much to do. And he kind of dresses her to be like really like dowdy and she doesn't kind of get like the heroic moment and he mm. like really downplays her so I mean he kind of positions her as being like the 
the lesser sister. Yeah. That, and she's damseled at the end where she has to be saved by Sam who comes in and saves her from Norman. Wow, Hitchcock is a monster. I was really frustrated at like how <laughs> difficult that information was to find as well. Like that is not presented as even in the like sort of reappraisal of Alfred Hitchcock and female actors and women characters and all this stuff, that doesn't come up a lot, which I guess maybe is because it's kind of a blip comparatively, but like logistically even if you're trying to streamline this movie sam is very much in the way in the back half of that movie it would have been very Mm -hmm. simple to give lila kind of an elevated role and you know maybe it is more realistic that she'd have to bump up against this guy that thinks he's knows what he's doing or thinks that he knows her sister better than she does or, or whatever different kind of blips come up between them. But it's like, he's mostly in the way and like Lila's character. We also just don't really know anything about her outside of the fact that she's Marion's sister. True. We don't know, like, is she also a single girl? Are they super close? It seems like they are, but we don't really know. What are her hobbies? Yeah. There's just that throwaway line at the beginning where, I mean, they do kind of like offhand be kind of, suggests that she's like a bit pathetic or it's just like well you know when sam talks about her like we'll send her off to the movies and turn the picture of your mother Mm -hmm. around and kind of get busy Mm -hmm. it's frustrating yeah i think like we could have i don't know if the way she would have been written in 1960 i also don't really have a clear idea of how she's presented in the book and how much that was changed but it just felt like Mm -hmm. i was happy she was there and i was happy that she was I guess, yeah, more active than I would have expected, especially because Sam is in all of those scenes and you sort of half expect that he's going to be like, we have to do this, this and this, where most of the actions they take are orchestrated by her. But ultimately, I feel like we're kind of shortchanged the opportunity to see kind of who she is. And the fact that that's connected to Hitchcock's malicious treatment of women he worked with Uh just sort of puts a bow in it i mean we i guess that this is worth going through in brief we'll include links to more thorough sources on this but because this is the first time we've talked about a hitchcock movie on this show if you have not Mm -hmm. encountered not really a feminist hero that alfred hitchcock um was famously (laughs) abusive and coercive to a number of women that he worked with. Um, I think most famously and the woman that he worked with who has spoken out about it most extensively, Layla, you referenced earlier Tippi Hedren in the movie that made my classmates and definitely not me pee, The Birds, (laughs) where not only was she treated brutally on the set of that shoot he was also relentlessly sexually harassing her behind the scenes controlling her behavior controlling her food intake and just generally making her entire early career a living hell she spoke out on this and a number of times starting in the 1980s but was mostly brushed to the side until she released a memoir in uh, i think it was 2016 or 17 and spoke about it in more detail. Similar stories exist for the actor Brigitte Aubert, who played a part in To Catch a Thief, who was sort of taken on as a, you know, mentee by Alfred Hitchcock. She was thrilled about it. She's a young actor. And then he, you know, sexually assaulted her in a car, lunged at her, tried to kiss her, etc. 
that's well documented. Different women who worked in his offices. It was just like a very clear pattern of behavior that was, I think, in the way that these stories very often are, just like an open secret internally, but it's almost tacitly expected that no one should know or should care because of the looming shadow of like what this director means to culture and you know bloody fucking blah yeah yeah i end up feeling like very protective of like my kind of 12 year old film fan self Mm -hmm. who's just like oh my god a hitchcock box set and a kubrick box set what could go wrong (laughs) it's not fair I mean, I think the interesting thing about Hitchcock is I'm not in any way trying to like excuse like the rank misogyny. And I think you can see it on the screen and like, you know, he's a wonderfully talented director in many regards. Like that doesn't make any of that suck less. But I think there's a weird kind of cyclical thing happens that because he's so convinced of like the kind of passivity of men and like connected to like essentially blaming women for their actions where they weirdly end up being like the most compelling character in each one of his films because like the men are kind of like useless babies a lot of the time because like Mm -hmm. the original sin must go back to the woman so she ends up being like inadvertently the most like the core of it all i think marion is like a good example of that too where it's like the compelling parts of marion's character i genuinely don't know at every turn whether i am supposed to be fascinated by her and excited by like who she is and the choices she's making but i am if it's an accident i guess i don't really (laughs) give a shit like it's good that you can find that inside of her. And yeah, like you're saying, Layla, it doesn't make Hitchcock less of a monster in the way that he both treated women and viewed them. This was in the Hitchcock Truffaut interviews as well. He was, he was asked, why do you hate women? And he answered, I don't exactly hate them, but I certainly don't think they're as good actors as men. And then goes on to explain at length why women suck at acting and that's why he has to you know be mean to them and be harder on them and dress them suggestively to distract from the fact that they are worse actors than men so it's so weird it's like he i mean not weird it's i guess (laughs) normal but i i think he engaged in a mask off discussion of it that is pretty wild where he was pretty open about his misogynist views on women's skills and ability and valuing them for looks over talent, but also was Mm -hmm. sort of really determined that how that manifested in his behavior was never public until well after he died. Like, gee, Alfred, is there anything else that maybe they're dealing with on the set that the man (laughs) might be making their jobs harder? Oh, it didn't occur to him. God. And speaking of like... (laughs) blaming women and women are sinners who must be punished like the speech that the psychiatrist is giving at the end where like poor lila she just keeps being like is my sister dead or what like she still doesn't even know what happened to her sister and the psychiatrist (laughs) yes and another thing well she was really sexy and that's why she's dead because she was so attractive and norman bates was so attracted to her and so aroused by her that he had to kill her 
okay. Jeez, like, like, dude, read the room. Can you frame this a little bit <laughs> seriously? <laughs> yeah, her sister literally died. Yeah, no, I mean that that needs to. I mean, I I did kind of think that the Barbie movie doesn't need a sequel, but maybe it's Ken watching Psycho. <laughs> Truly, they showed in The Godfather, but there's a whole world out there. <laughs> There's other movies. I don't even know what to make of this line exactly, but there's a part where when Arbogast goes to question Norman Bates and he's just like, oh, was the, like this woman was here. I know she was. And, you know, maybe she tricked you or like maybe she's trying to scheme you. And Norman Bates says something like, I'm not a fool and I'm not capable of being fooled, not even by a woman. I know. <laughs> and, then, and then, like, just to kind of make it all the more twisted, it was just like, but even if I was fooled, my mother wouldn't be fooled. <laughs> Jesus Okay. <Christ. laughs> Way okay, to make it sir. all the women's fault again. <laughs> They're like, what? It, it did seem like that scene was making an effort to blame every woman we have seen in the entire movie before or heard of, because we don't ever see them. Mm -hmm. What a treat. Yeah, this is just my favorite thing of fiction, though. Like, these, like, unassuming man babies. I mean... <laughs> like, the true evil in the world. I really like it when they're identified. Yeah, that is Norman Bates yeah. to a T. Yeah, I mean... To the point where he still has, like, stuffed animals in his bedroom and, like... Okay, Watch A little tiny baby bed. Okay. <laughs> no. I feel like this is going to be pitched. This is my next piece. The kind of Norman Bates to 500 Days of Summer pipeline. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. I would read that 100%. Uh, <laughs> on it. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything they'd like to discuss? I have one more quick thing um, just about going kind of back to the discussion of Norman Bates as an iconic movie serial killer and how serial killers are this fixation of and to some extent invention of the media and media narratives and mm -hmm. just watching it again it's not a movie that's discussed in this piece but it's one of my favorites and by friend of the cast and a dear pal sarah marshall wrote a great piece in the believer last year mm -hmm. called violent delights sort of about the specifically American media fixation on serial killers and sort of examining true crime fandom as it exists today. Mm -hmm. The passage I was thinking of while we're looking at Norman Bates and the fact that he was inspired by a real-life serial killer, although, as you explained, Caitlin, the gender nonconforming elements were way mistranslated onto Norman Bates. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But just how the serial killers that media narratives and movies tend to focus on are serial killers who are other in some kind of way and ignore the most common type of serial murder, which is a straight man. <laughs> and so the example that she uses in the piece is um, someone who I'd never heard of before uh, I met Sarah and she told me about all these serial killers. Um, is Ronald Gene Simmons, who is not a well-known American serial killer, but committed at the time one of the most horrific mass murders, including his entire family, over the course of two days. And she speculates the reason that he is not fixated on is because there is nothing that's other about him. He is 
a regular guy who committed a horrible mm. atrocity and how that is framed as kind of the way of the world, even though it is like far more criminal act of murder than we see when women kill people and when queer people kill other people. It's presented in a different way where it's like mm -hmm. fundamentally evil. This is at the core of their being versus when right. we hear about straight men killing people and usually white straight men killing people that it's presented as well they were reacting to the world not that they are evil to their core mm -hmm. and so just in the way that Norman Bates is othered and made to seem effeminate and dresses you know like we were saying gender nonconforming, it feels like those are the characters that really get fixated on and made examples of in this completely disingenuous way. And I'd recommend reading the piece. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is fascinating to me that like Ed Gein has generally got like problematic elements aside, eight great movies and like <laughs> nobody else I don't think comes like close to that. It's mm -hmm. wild. I didn't realize. Cause we got this, we got Texas Chainsaw, we got Silence of the Land, like, the, like Ed Gein, it's really interesting how he in particular captured like the cultural imagination mm, yeah. and the way that they are yet to make a decent Ted Bundy movie. And like, I mean that, <laughs> you know, from a million gross reasons and I don't even want to like get into like the way that Ted Bundy has been framed by the media because it just, yeah, it will mm. burst into tears. But like, it is very interesting that like this one guy and just these couple of details where it's like, we got, the, it's essentially mm. the grave robbing it's the kind of taxidermy maybe doing leather work something with like people's skin and it's like just the hint of queerness mm -hmm. and like that was enough to inspire like it was like Helen of Troy he like launched a thousand ships in terms of like cultural imagination yeah. similarly the movie Psycho where I, the last thing I want to talk about is and I'm not an expert in film history but this movie was made in 1960 when the Production code, which we've talked about on the show before in various episodes, um, just very quick refresher if, if any listeners are not familiar. It was this code that Hollywood movies had to follow mm -hmm. from 1934 to, I believe, 1968, I think, was when it was replaced by the like MPAA rating system. Mm -hmm. But basically, it was this like set of guidelines that was overseen by the Catholic Church, where like there could be no nudity or overt sexuality on screen. A lot of things had to be implied rather than shown. There could be no graphic violence, all these different yeah. things, just as, as a way to censor movies. No interracial relationships where they were treated as equals. That was a fun one. All kinds of like really disgusting stuff that was seen as a way to like you know, promote good American religious values when it was really just censoring art and being nasty. But anyway, by the 60s, the code, the restrictions of the code were becoming a bit more lax. Um, they were still being enforced, but filmmakers were like finding ways to like try to circumvent the restrictions and stuff like that. And a lot of the things that were in the original cut of Psycho, you know, the board 
were like, you can't have this scene where they're in a hotel room where she's half naked, like, you know, she's topless with just a bra on and they're kissing and they're not married. Like, you can't have stuff like that. The the shower scene, you know, they obviously had a lot of problems with the shower scene. But eventually, like, Hitchcock wormed his way out of it and a lot of the stuff that he originally wanted stayed in the film. And because this was such a huge, like, box office hit, this movie was made on a tight budget even for the time. It was made for less than a million dollars, and it grossed $50 million at the box office. Like, it was just a huge smash hit to the point where the original critical reception of this movie was, like, pretty mixed, where people were like, this is so controversial. I don't know about this. It's scandalous. But because, like, audiences loved it, critics were like, maybe it is awesome. And then it was, like, nominated for various Academy Awards, all this stuff. But not Anthony Perkins, which is a crime. (sighs) Ridiculous. But anyway, this movie basically set a new level of like acceptability in terms of what you could show on screen with violence and sexuality and quote unquote deviant behavior, which is a very loaded idea. But this movie kind of like set a new standard. And again, this isn't the first movie that showed, you know, like a gender nonconforming person as a violent murderer um the documentary that we referenced earlier disclosure dives into that a lot more deeply i'd recommend everyone watching that film there's also another docu-series on shutter called queer for fear which is all about um representation of queerness in horror movies i haven't watched it so i couldn't necessarily recommend it but it seems interesting and i'm going to watch it Anyway, all this to say that this movie was so influential in sort of like shaping the way certain things were represented on screen. And I think so much of the way mental illness is like widely misunderstood by Hollywood and gender nonconformity is widely misunderstood by Holiday can be attributed to this movie. So it has a lasting impact in many ways and not all of them are good. In fact, many of them are very bad. Anyway, the end of my tirade about that. <laughs> it's a tough one. Like I have to just like resist the mental gymnastics where I try to be like, it's okay, actually. <laughs> because, you know, appreciate a great edit, but... No, I mean, like you, you have to kind of reconcile even things that you appreciate art that you think is great with its like negative impact on the world. And like that needs to be, I think, the priority. I agree. Anything else before we do Bechdel test? I like this movie. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think it, I think in spite of everything we've talked about and its complete validity, this movie rips, and so that's challenging. It is yeah. tricky. Yes, I call it. Um, I kind of created a name for it based on like Jared Carmichael has a really great episode of the Carmichael Show where he talks about how like fundamentally we all have to kind of make a decision based on like how talented and good something is versus how like damaging it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an episode where they're discussing Bill Cosby, but I have like taken that on mentally and I call it the Elia Kazan index. Mm. Where he sucked. 
<laughs> but he was really good at movies. But so I consider that an index. And it's like, you, I, this is how talented you need, I need you to be in order for <laughs> me to recover mm. from <laughs> that you are a force for evil. <laughs> and everyone's mileage varies with that right i mean i trust myself to watch hitchcock and like not become like an agent of the patriarchy (laughs) right right right. (laughs) i know there's certain things that i struggle to let go of because they were made by someone very problematic but they are such a terrific piece of media that it's a constant battle that i fight every day and you're braver than the troops for that. I, I, wow. We have to say it again. We're in the front lines of <laughs> watching movies. All three of us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> damn. Okay. The only thing that I would add, because it's in all caps, so I feel like I have to mention. Oh, you simply must. Perfect. This is the best eyebrow movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, you're right. <laughs> yes. Every single character. Like... Yeah. The sheriff has like these tufts. Oh, yes. Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, strong brow coming on from Sam. Mm-hmm. It's true. Again, like, I don't want to be like reductive, but like, what an era for the eyebrow. <laughs> I'll allow it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I came out of like, you know, I'm a millennial. Like, we had a rough time and then we had to try and grow them back. And, like, <laughs> With varying degrees of success, it takes years and you <laughs> forward, you're backward. It's challenging, truly. So lucky that I was too lazy and too poor to get regular waxing. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. it's so nice to see such a full set of brows across a cast. It is nice. I'm glad it's back. I'm glad a thick brow is back in vogue. It's my preference. When does that ever happen? That Like the thing that's like really in fashion and like really aesthetically pleasing to everyone. It's a thing that requires you to do nothing. Just leave them. Can we have more of that? Uh, yeah. As for the Bechdel test, I do believe that this movie passes. Is it between Marion and her colleague in the office at the beginning? Yes. Whose name is Caroline. Yeah, who's Hitchcock's daughter. Oh, that's Hitchcock's daughter. <gasps> oh, yeah. Okay. Which is a brutal role for your dad to write you because like there is like a really <laughs> like damning line at the end where she's just like oh he would have flirted at me but he must have spotted my wedding ring and that's like a punchline <laughs> like it's of course he didn't rude alfred i don't think they say her name out loud but she does have like it her name is like on her desk so i considered her mm-hmm. to be a named character she's credited as caroline they talk about i was actually i was watching this movie with my boyfriend and we were like i don't know if i have enough like knowledge of 1960 to understand what the joke is with the sedatives um if it's a mother's literal helper joke if it's a more insidious joke than that i was not clear but she was like don't Uh take aspirin take this like tranquilizer pill that my mom's doctor gave me or something and i was like this seems like a joke that probably made sense at the time it doesn't seem Mm. awesome but i don't fucking (laughs) understand it same anyways that passed the vectal test that does pass everyone's mother's just coming in and messing up (laughs) (laughs) truly yeah i I, my assumption with that joke is that like she took it and then passed out and wasn't able to like consummate the marriage but like maybe that's just oh god where my brain goes 
I mean, that that was one of the theories floated, but there just was... She was like so nervous. I don't know. That joke was so dated that I found it actively confusing, but it did Same. technically pass the Bechdel test. It so, did. There you go. There you go. But on to our perfect metric, the nipple scale. Our woefully titled metric. <laughs> Not to be confused with... Uh, no, never mind. I was going to make a reference to something that Ed Gein had made, but I won't even... If you want to look Ooh. it up, Ooh. you can. Dark. I think I know the one you're thinking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So instead, I'll just breeze right past it. The nipple scale. Zero to five nipples where we rate the movie based on examining it through an intersectional feminist lens. I guess I'll give this like a one one nipple for because it does have interesting female characters to some degree granted one of them is murdered 45 minutes into the movie the other one doesn't get a whole lot of screen time or active participation in the narrative but I like both Marion and Lila as characters they are strong-willed they are active to some degree. Mm -hmm. They are damseled and or killed. So they're kind of, they befall, not, not a, a great fate befalls them. But um, the time they are on screen, they're, I would say, more interesting than a lot of the male characters. But ultimately, this is a movie that wildly misunderstands mental illness and conflates gender nonconformity with violence, being violent, and does a whole lot of extremely reductive and harmful things to extremely vulnerable communities and kind of paves the way for a lot of movies to do similar things later on. Um, so it kind of, again, doesn't completely lay the groundwork for this. Earlier movies had done something similar. But this is, again, one of the most iconic movies in American cinema history. And the implications of what happens in the movie have had a very lasting impact for worse. So I can only give it one nipple. And I'll give that nipple to Janet Lee because she is cool. I don't know much about her personal life, but she rocked. She's famously Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. Mommy. And this movie yeah. is about mommies. Went through the nightmare of being married to Tony Curtis. Yeah, she's, she's a survivor. <laughs> but also not because she died. But only because she was old. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <laughs> well, on that note, I guess I will. <laughs> 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 and I meant that sorry, critically. Okay, I meant that. Just, how dare she? <laughs> Technically. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you live long sorry. enough, no one's a survivor. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is the direction that survivordom goes. Yeah, it's, survivordom is temporary. <laughs> it's a finite <laughs> yeah. Diminishing returns on being alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, well, I guess I will go one. I guess I'm tempted to go one and a half because of how surprised I was at what was available in this movie and what had mm-hmm. changed to scale back the misogyny present in the original text, which I feel like usually that uh, is flipped. But I don't know. I guess whoever edits the Wikipedia these days, you can choose one or one and a half depending on how uh, you personally feel. But <laughs> I, I, I mean, I... Obviously, I, th- I think that the biggest issue with this movie is, as, as we've talked about, how the character of Norman Bates contains all of these conflicting things being presented as evil with the uh, gender nonconformity being front and center for what has this legacy of harm. And then also mental illness being mischaracterized as inherently incurable, untreatable, violent, murderous, bad so that I think is the part of this movie that is just kind of impossible for me to reconcile to some extent. Then I think that, you know, whether intentionally or not, there is way. Okay, sorry, my cat's here. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Flea. Present. Flea has entered the chat. It's being so loud. <laughs> but I, I think as far as um, how much we get to know Marion, how her perspective is prioritized for the first half of the movie, um, I was pleasantly surprised by. I was on her side. It felt like the movie was on her side. I felt like Lila was underplayed. And then that leads to Hitchcock's legacy of misogyny and why Lila's character was underplayed. So for everything mm-hmm. we've talked about today, I guess I'm going to go one and a half for some reason arbitrarily and I'm going to give one to Janet Lee, and I'll give the other half to Vera Miles because she had to endure a lot and didn't get to do what she should have been able to do on this movie mm-hmm. I mean I think I'm actually going to like do a reasonably big boost and go with like two and a half but like I don't credit any of that particularly mm-hmm. to Hitchcock I think it's sort of he inadvertently centered queer stories and women's stories like within this movie in a way that like for all that it's problematic it is at least compelling and like particularly like within the job that I do and like I have to just like review like film for week and stuff it's like so often where I'm just having to see women and anybody from marginalized gender like use this kind of like narrative tools to kind of help straight suspense character arcs that like this still feels like refreshing that I was just like I don't think Psycho expects me to give a shit about what Sam's up to and like that's still kind of for all of like the problems mm. with it that feels nice to like actually be like Janet Lee was given the space <laughs> to make a character like we are kind of going into for all of its issue all of norman bates's relationship with mother is the central thing in his life it's not all about him just trying of like trying to impress other dudes like i don't give a crap in those scenes where like sam and norman are kind of like having some weird alpha beta male kind of like standoff so like yeah i don't credit hitchcock with like doing this on purpose but like weirdly he made the the people in the film that mattered most, like strangely like subversive and progressive and exciting to me. And I, I don't know how much like 
Janet Lee bought to that, how much like, you know, the story that I don't know how much like Anthony Perkins bought of his like personal story, but I feel now watching it, seeing the way that like obviously an actress like Janet Lee would have been objectified her whole life, the way that like Anthony Perkins would have to have like suppressed so much of his identity. I feel like I'm watching that on screen and like that's me as like genuinely mm-hmm. exciting and cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's such a cool way to put it. Yeah. Do you have anyone you want to give your nipples to? Trying to think, I feel like I need to give them to Jamie Lee Curtis because, like, what a burden to carry like, your entire career. <laughs> and, like, and I love that, like, when a nepo baby is just like so open with just like, hey, it got down to me and like three other people for Halloween, and they were like, we'll make a couple of headlines if it's like the Star of Psycho's daughter, and just mm. fully open about it. Like, I mean, I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I do too. I, I, I'm like that's. I guess the least you could ask of of someone in that position is just to be honest about it and it seems like she is like uniquely able to be honest about it because most people are like I don't know I guess I just did my best and worked harder (laughs) you're just like okay Um, Uh, but you know Jack Quaid is like seems to be like the Gen Z version of um, Jamie Lee Curtis because he's out on those picket lines I saw him pictures of him today so it's like yeah some of the good my crush. oh is he Dennis Quaid's son Meg Ryan and Dennis Dennis Quaid son. and Megan Ryan oh, Meg Ryan yeah, yeah. I never I have remember they have a kid together I think they have multiple damn well <laughs> Lila thank you so much for joining us do you want to talk at all about the Latif test? I feel like it's like such a great thing that you did and I'd love to like give it credit if, oh. if you'd like to. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Bechdel test was my path into like this being my job essentially. Like I was working in a completely different field. I had a catering and events company and then like one night I was, um, don't tell my parents, but stoned. Um, and like, I just was like texting my sister and I was just like, ha, oh, there should be like a Bechdel test for race. And this was like 2016, I want to say. And I promise this wasn't really a thing before I, um, coined it, but my sister is very much like a movie nerd as well. She's a film director and mm-hmm. we were just texting about how like, well, what would a Bechdel test for race be? And it's like, you know, similar beats of like, you got to have two characters that aren't white. They got to talk to each other about something aside from what's going on with a white character. Uh, one of them is definitely not magic. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it's just like silly stuff. And it like really like took off. And it was one of those very strange things where like, that's the first thing I ever wrote. And I remember like meeting with this editor and he was you know, for The Guardian, which is like a big paper in the UK Mm -hmm. and him being just like, we're putting it on the cover. And I had this like completely false belief about like what being a journalist is. It's just like, wait a second, you have an idea and they're like 3000 words. You got two months. See you in a bit, kid. Um, But yeah, like that was, that was my intro to it all. And it was just also, I mean, from my perspective, like such a kind of interesting delve into white feminism in like a weird way because Mm -hmm. I had a huge number of white female journalists within like the next like couple of weeks just like take my work and like fully rip it off and I didn't really understand what was going on at the time um and in retrospect it's like really messed up I had like actually like the editor of the paper that had published my work write a retort to me saying that like creativity is being wiped out as we demand diversity 
I mean, like, it's, it, it really is, like, 2016 was, like, the wild west of intersectional Ooh. feminism. <laughs> For sure. And, yeah, in a way, I, w- I kind of wish I knew what I knew now, because I would have been able to stand up myself a bit better. But, mm. like, yeah, the sort of Bechdel test was kind of, like, my, my intro, but also, like, a bit of a curse of, um, like, I've always been interested in, like, the way that we, like, frame these things and the way that we sort of address representation. But mm-hmm. it bit me on the ass. Like, I, I, I had every kind of, um, of retort coming back to it. Um, and sometimes I do think now that, like, as much as like that was kind of just like something that I tried out and like now this is like my full-time job which is awesome it's a tricky one because Mm -hmm. I think some of those retorts some of that ripping off wouldn't happen now but maybe it would I don't know like have things gotten that much better since 1960s psycho (sighs) not a ton it's so absurdly frustrating to me that it's like your first of all that you were ripped off is fucking ridiculous oh, i'm so sorry yeah check out the dates for the latif test and then two weeks later the new york times re- renaming it the divano test <laughs> like, okay okay like it's, yeah uh, that's horseshit and then on top of that i i think that there is like a disingenuous way of framing tests like the latif test like the bechdel test as a demand when it's just a way to have a discussion and like mm-hmm. I, I think it, even today and by people that I'm generally like-minded with I get frustrated when it's a framework to set a baseline and discuss moving forward it's not like you're trying to I don't know like I feel like it's presented very disingenuously very often as a way to not have an intersectional discussion. Right. 100%. It's why I don't even pay attention if a movie passes the Bechdel test or not for this podcast, because it's so little of what we actually talk about. And so it's Mm -hmm. such, again, it's, it's a jumping off point and we have left that jumping off point years ago, (laughs) uh, at least for the sake of this podcast. Like we, we are so far beyond that and I understand how it still can be a useful tool, but like in the context of this podcast, I'm just like, yeah, but what about the other like 100 minutes we spend talking about everything else about the movie? So, yeah, I mean, patterns are interesting. I mean, they like they just are like, mm-hmm. and like whether it's kind of even looking at something like Psycho, would we be so worried about? the trans gender non-conforming representation in Psycho, if it was not part of like something larger and more insidious, it would just be like a quirk of the movie. Right. But like everything has to be contextualized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's stuff out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Where else can people check out your writing, follow you on social media, etc.? Um, so I'm at Layla underscore Latif on Twitter before at least before Elon the Musk formerly known as to the ground. X. Um yeah, I've got I host Truth and Movies, which is a podcast where we review like the week's latest releases. And yeah, I'm a contributing editor and columnist for Total Film, right for the White Lies, Sight and Sound. About to be the IndieWire representative on the ground for the Venice Film Festival, which Hell should be fun. Yeah. Oh my god. 
no celebrities or actors gonna mm-hmm. come but like i'm hoping that they like put that budget into giving us free food mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that'd be we'll nice see. yeah <laughs> oh, i'm so excited to read your cover hell yeah and thank you so much for coming on the show yeah. come back anytime thank you so much for making this show i freaking love this show oh, thank you we love making it thanks for being a part of it and yeah come back anytime bring back anything I'm just trying to think, like, what could be, like, a more hardcore thing than this? Like, in terms of, like... You'll be our undiscussable movies guest. Oof. Yeah. I still feel like we've only just scratched the surface. Like, Ace Ventura? I'm like, what are we going to do? God. <laughs> Yipes. Let's not do that. Let's not. Um, but, hey, you can follow us at Bechtelcast. You can subscribe to our matreon at patreon.com slash bechtelcast where you get two bonus episodes every month plus access to the back catalog and it's all for five dollars a month yes uh you can also get our merch over at tpublic.com slash the bechtelcast and with that let's get pulled out of that scary bog at the end of the movie oh yeah (laughs) Never. Bye. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.